it is such a privilege to be able to minister and to be here tonight as we head into this wonderful weekend that we are going to be uh, just celebrating, but uh, maybe more importantly, contemplating and uh, drawing out the life. I hope, I, I, well, let me encourage you just for starters that if you've never taken a Lenten season fast, the 40 days leading up to Easter, I really want to encourage you to consider doing that. It doesn't have to be draconian. You don't need to eat one meal a day or one meal every three days or something. It can be just something that you set aside for the purpose of drawing close to the Lord and just letting him know who is Lord of your life by doing that. And uh, so it's a real privilege to be able to speak and minister to, uh, to you folks uh, on this uh, Wednesday leading up to Good Friday and uh, Resurrection Day on Sunday. Um, thank you for allowing me, Pastor AJ, and for scheduling this, and just good to be here. In 1804, a special unit of the Army was created by President Thomas Jefferson, and its mission was to start in St. Louis, Missouri, and to go up the Missouri River and explore what we now know as the Midwestern part of the United States, up into the Dakotas, up over the Rocky Mountains, and this uh, group of soldiers uh, ended up on the Pacific coast two years later. Having mapped and explored, having met some 12 different uh, Native American nations in that time, seen animals and herds that had never been seen before by any, anyone from the East. And uh, the name of that group, it was led by, you might recognize, uh, Lewis and Clark. Uh, they were the commanders of it. But the name of the group, the name that unit had was the Core of Discovery. The Core of Discovery. This evening, I want to enlist you to join a core of discovery, to explore and enter into something far larger, far more significant than the Louisiana Purchase. I want to invite you to join me on a, a journey of discovery. And I will just say it's one that I've been on for some months now, and uh, it's, it's, it's done some things in my life that uh, uh, are, are, are meaningful and are the beginnings and the, the continuation, I guess, of some deep things that God wants to do. And it's out of that I want to commend this, this, this prospect of each one of us signing up for a core of discovery. What we'll consider is probably very familiar to all of us, but may have proven more elusive, more, more difficult to get a hold upon and live in than what we thought should be the case. I want us to look at Christ and ourselves in a fresh way, <clears throat> with a simple, honest, open faith, not to judge ourselves, but to discover, not from the vantage point of failure or frustration, but from that a vantage point of hope and with a determination to respond to the Lord. As you know, or many of you come on Wednesday, we're in a series what Christ's death has accomplished, what Jesus's death has accomplished. It was introduced three weeks ago by Pastor Corey when he spoke about uh, how Jesus has bought us out from under the spear. Tremendous image in the slave markets in Rome, captives from all over the known world at that time would be brought in and sold into slavery 
And the way the slave market would be announced is, is that a soldier would come and drive a spear in a post and the slaves would be assembled and they would be sold under the spear. And the picture here, of course, is one that Jesus is in the crowd and he sees you and he buys you out from under the spear. He forgives, he releases you, and he makes you, now we make ourselves his slave because he's bought us out from under the spear. Pastor Corey went on to say that, that such a reality, such truth now leads us to be people who are not only free from guilt and shame because we're forgiven, but we are to extend forgiveness to others. And there's great power in forgiving other people. And then last week, Pastor Jermaine Moore wonderfully set out the key that Christ has given us in his resurrection life. The power of sin has been broken and we have been made alive. We've been quickened by the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. And that quickening, I love that word, but what it means is, is, is that, that what was alien to us came in and breathed life. It's the picture of Ezekiel and the breath breathing on the dry bones in the valley. Something's made alive that was completely dead. And that was us. And Jesus came, and by his resurrection power, when we received it in faith, we were quickened, we were made alive. And as Pastor Germain so uh, neatly stated, his life has given us a key that unlocks us from what binds us and a key that opens doors of provision and authority that we're to walk through and live from. It's a great picture. Well, tonight, <clears throat> I have been given uh, the verse, Ephesians 2.13, and could I ask you to stand? We're going to read that verse. But now in Christ Jesus, Paul writes, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let me read it again. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Lord God, I pray that as we consider this verse and what flows out of it, like a stream, a great stream of living water, that Lord God, you would meet us, you would speak to us, and you would grace me as one who just wants to testify and offer the truth of your word to these dear people. Help us to hear, help us to receive and respond in a way that pleases you, Lord, I pray. Amen. Be seated. <clears throat> I want to begin tonight by hearing what this passage tells us right off. We have been drawn close. What does that infer? It infers that we weren't close. That we were, in fact, Paul says it at the beginning of the second chapter of Ephesians. Jermaine mentioned it last week. We were dead. We were alienated. We were not only, we were separated from God. Such was our condition, but the Lord has seen fit by his death to draw us near. He's, he's, he's repositioned us with himself. And it's, good to, it's important to have this notion of positioning clearly in view because that's what this verse is telling us. God has taken us and put us in position right here, right next to himself. Now, 
At one point, we were distant and alienated, and now he's made us near. Again, from the, earlier in the second chapter of Ephesians, Paul writes, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places. Again, positioning. Colossians has the parallel of that, and it says that we are, we are dead and our life is hidden in Christ, or hidden with Christ in God. We're positioned close, close in. I want us to look in a fresh way at what the implications of this are for us. Normally, I would put this verse in a good homiletical fashion. I would put this verse in its proper context. I would look at what has led up to it. I would look at where we find it in the, third, in the second chapter of Ephesians. I would consider what it's saying, and I would consider what it is that Paul is stating in terms of where he's going in, his, in the development. And this verse is, is a big verse. Because what Paul is doing with this verse is setting up the whole revelation of the mystery of God, of making all things, the God making all things one, reuniting all things with himself, tearing down the dividing wall and the barriers. But I'm not going to go through that tonight. <laughs> I'm going to commend you listen to Pastor Germain for the verses leading up to this. And next week, Pastor Stephen Law is going to talk with a minister talking about the verses leading out from this. So that allows me the liberty to talk about this verse. Instead, I'm going to just commend you to, to listen to these teachers, these ministers, and let, it, let them unpack the broader dimensions of what this passage is addressing. Having, having kind of stepped away from the traditional homiletical uh, approach to this passage, I want to ask one question. And this is the, ever since this was assigned to me, this is the first thing that came into my mind, and I think it's an important question. Why would God position us this way? Why would God draw us, you and me, near? As he has done. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Why? The correct exegetical answer, I've already alluded to, is to work out God's eternal purpose. He's bringing us near. In fact, this verse is found in the context of God. Not only did he awaken us, make us alive to himself, but he's put us among his historic people of, of Israel. We have been adopted into his family, and we are now part of the household of God. We've been drawn near in that way. And that's definitely a correct answer. Some would say, well, he's drawn us near so that we can proclaim the gospel. Exactly right. Good answer. True. But I want to suggest there is an even more basic answer that we often overlook that is vital, even to the outworking of these previous two responses. And I think we can find at least a, a window into that a little later in Ephesians when Paul prays his great pastoral prayer for the church at Ephesus. And here he reaches to the heavens and he prays to the Father who is the Father of all fatherhoods. And he prays and asks that according to the riches of your glory, Father, that you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit, in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. 
that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Now, this is one of those basic, when you received Jesus Christ, when you first believed in Christ, it was probably described to you as, well, now Christ has come to live in your heart. And we take that, and that's, that's true, and it's life. We've been quickened. We, all of the, the presence of God's indwelling life is there for us. And I want to suggest maybe we don't give it a whole lot more thought beyond that. But here's, here's the point. We've been brought near to Christ, seated with him in God, so that we can live with him. And so that he can live with us. We are positioned with him in order to bring this about. Having taken up residence with us, having come to live in us, Christ now intends for us to live with him. To live with Jesus. God graciously positions us that we may now live and walk with him. His plan is that his people would live with him as the first couple did in the garden. God's plan is to restore you and me so that same degree of close, personal fellowship, intimate relationship that proceeds from the awe of experience God's glory is a reality working in us. Now, it will not be fulfilled until we see Jesus face to face, but the kingdom of heaven we are now a part of, is, made, is, is available to us and we live in it in order that we can begin to experience that reality and enter into that reality and draw from that reality and as we'll see in a moment, be changed by that reality. For our part, and here's the journey, here's the core of discovery. For our part, we need to discover and learn how to live and walk in such a way. This journey of discovery presents us with three realities that give us a starting place from which to proceed. The first reality, living in Christ, Christ invites us to walk with him. Matthew eleven twenty eight, very familiar. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, this is one of those verses. I'm not quite sure how it works for us, but we'll get really wrapped around the axle. We'll get under a lot of pressure. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll get very uptight about things and very, uh, things really pressing us. And then somebody will remind us of this. Well, you know what the Lord says. Come on to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So I guess what we think is we just need a little yoke time. Oh, I feel a lot better. And then back we go. That isn't what Jesus is describing at all here. He's talking about something that put two oxen together, side by side. I love the picture, cheek to cheek, where an ongoing, continuing conversation can be had. What a great picture of praying without ceasing. Continually walking together, walking together in the same pace, 
walking together wherever they go, walking in the same direction together, yoked. That's the picture that Jesus is drawing from, and in that agricultural area, it would have, it would have resonated with them. It is to this very end of doing this and being able to do this that the Spirit has been sent, the Spirit of God has been sent into our hearts to strengthen us and make it possible to live with Christ in this way. It's the Holy Spirit who comes to open up the reality of what Christ brings us. And so we are able to walk and learn how to walk as Jesus is describing. As I began to consider this and, and, and began to press into this, some I, I had one morning I was praying and I had a picture of saying, well, imagine if you were one of the 12. Okay. Suddenly, poof. You're the invisible 13th disciple. You wake up in the morning. There's Jesus. You're having breakfast. You're talking with Jesus. You wash the dishes up, and he may have a towel drying them. You get on the road to go to the next village, you're walking, and you're talking with Jesus. And, of course, the other disciples as well. You go into the synagogue in that village, and you hear Jesus. And then afterward, you go to Peter's home, and his mother-in-law, who's famous for good cooking, spreads a great spread, and you're sitting down enjoying delicious food, laughing and talking with Jesus. Now, the Lord never intended for that to be different just because he wasn't there physically. This is what it is to walk with our Lord. The yoke is a symbol of shared labor. But here, our labor is not for God. It's laboring with God. Now that is a paradigm shift. That our lives are no longer lived asking and seeking the Lord to join with us, to give us grace and bless what we do and get us, get us out of difficulty, but rather we begin to live with him, following him, joining him, walking with him into everything we do in life. From work to relaxation to ministry to dealing with conflict, difficulty and even failure. All is done in actively interacting with and relying upon and drawing from the one we're yoked to. Now, I think this is where, this is where it gets a little, it gets a little difficult. I'm going to mention a little bit later, but I've started on this journey a couple of different times. And it wasn't until just somewhat recently almost 50 years in the ministry, that it finally resolved to begin to enter in. And I just want to say to us, when it gets to this place to where we no longer compartmentalize our lives, when we don't have the yoke hanging on the wall while we watch TV, and I'm going to reference this a little bit earlier, while we're doing something, not just necessarily TV, just social media, and it's not sin. Not sin. I'm not talking about doing something bad. I'm not talking about hanging the yoke up here so I can go do some perverse thing. But we have a mentality that hangs up the yoke because we think we're going to miss something if we try to do it with Jesus. Second reality. Life transformation comes as we live in the way I'm describing. 
2 Corinthians 3, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, here's what's being described there, and, and, and you almost you have to dig down into even the Greek language because the verbs that are used are describing something very specific. What Paul is describing is consider yourself as looking in a mirror. Only the image that you're seeing in the mirror isn't your image. It is the face of Jesus Christ, the glory of Almighty God revealed to us. And the longer we look... And the more we behold, and the more consistently we dwell upon that image, we're changed into that image. And the word that's used there is our good old biology class word, metamorphosis. We are transitioned from one degree of glory to another. We understand it to say we are transitioned, transformed from being caterpillars to butterflies. And that process is what's underway as we behold the glory of the Lord. As we consistently, continually abiding with him, walking in the yoke. How far do I have to look if Jesus is right here to behold the glory of the Lord? I'm walking cheek to cheek with glory. And folks, let me just say, this is where the transformation that we all long for that brings freedom, that brings healing, that brings wholeness. This is how it happens. Now, I'm not saying don't quit your counselor or do any. I'm not, I'm not saying nothing negative about nothing. I'm just saying this is where change is undertaken in our life. And this is how God designed and intended change to occur. He wants to change us himself and he wants to change us into his image and he wants to change us in love and he wants to change us by being with us and us being with him all the time. God's intent is that we be conformed to the image of Christ and that Christ be increasingly seen and experienced in our life. Here you go. This is discipleship. The process of continually following Christ, learning from him, and being transformed as we do so. Life in the yoke works the transformation God intends in us. Life in the yoke works the transformation. They go together. You walk with Jesus, you get changed by Jesus. You try to change apart from the walk, and you're going to be so-so in your responses. Transformation has everything to do with what we give our attention to. What we think about and what we focus our minds on. Beholding the glory of God continually as we walk with Christ transforms us. As someone said, behavior modification cannot bring transformation. But transformation will bring behavior modification. Third reality, and this will be the final one. We must own our discipleship. 
Jesus didn't say, follow me, only to Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He has invited all of us to follow him. Being a disciple, and please hear this, being a disciple is a choice we make. It's not a title that we're given at our baptism. It's a choice, folks. It's something we, for, until we get in the groove of being a disciple, disciple along the lines of what I'm talking about, we have to choose it every day. We have to put aside the distracting thoughts. And, and, and just real quick, it is so easy for our minds to meander. I will be thinking about the Lord. I will be meditating on a passage of Scripture. And suddenly, suddenly something from Downton Abbey is in my mind. Good, because I'm going to quote you a little later because you've given us, Bishop, one of the answers in all of this. And you'll see that when we get there. But, but I mean, how does that work? Help me. I've started this journey a time or two. I'm just telling you, we've got to persist. It's got to be something we choose. Discipleship is the process of continually following Christ, and we have to make that choice all the time. We must make such a decision every day. We must be intentional in our decision. Owning our discipleship is to actively enter into what God is doing in us and around us and to do so continually yoked to Christ. That's the first thing, own your discipleship in terms of, of, of how we do that. We, be, we're, we start by being a disciple. Second, overcome passivity. Listen to this. I thought this was so cool. I, I, I didn't get this from somebody else. I thought just as I've thought about it. Our passivity comes from at least three different, three different things combined to make us passive in the face of all this. First is a wrong understanding of our freedom in Christ. We have come to regard freedom won for us by Jesus' sacrifice as now our prerogative to do with what we want to do as long as we don't sin. Do you see compartmentalization in that? I get to the end of the day and hey, <laughs> this is confession time. I get to the end of the day, you know, I, there's something on. I wanna, I'll go back and watch two or three sessions of it. Is it bad? No. But it's me doing for me what I think will do me the best. A wrong understanding of our freedom in Christ. A wrong understanding of earning our salvation. Grace works in us. We have this understanding, well, you don't have to work for grace. People start showing a lot of effort, shot a lot of effort about things, and well, they're legalistic. They're just real, you know, they're, they're real narrow and they're just, and that isn't necessarily, that isn't, that isn't a right way of understanding grace. We don't work for grace, but we work with grace. We don't work to earn grace, but we definitely have to apply ourselves as disciples and work with the grace that's working in us. And the third thing that, we, that leads us to passivity, and this one is really where I see us at home here is a wrong understanding of the power of the Holy Spirit. God works miracles and delivers. There's no question of that. We all believe that. We all love that. But too often, we want to be supernaturally delivered 
from that which he intends to use to form Christ in us. We come in here looking for a miracle. And I'm saying before you look for a miracle, why don't you just stop and ask, say, Lord, what are you doing here? Is there, are there other means of grace you want me to access besides the miraculous, besides the power of God? You know, like the word of God. Like bowing before Jesus and humbling myself under his mighty hand and saying, Lord, you exalt me in due season. Have your way with me, O Lord. And that last part of owning our discipleship is we work with grace. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We must think about Christ and what he has said. We must think about Christ and what he has said. There was a time when thinking believers were, that was the norm. Now we want believing believers and sometimes we don't think that thinking is part of that. But we have to think about what the word of God says. We have to think about who Jesus is. We've got to place our thoughts and occupy our minds with the truth in such a way that that transformational change can work down in us. And it's a choice we make, folks. We must think about Christ and what he has said. And doing so, we must submit, we must obey, we must believe, and we must act. The renewing of our minds is not done for us, but it's done with us. My mind is renewed as I use and direct my thoughts toward this walk with Christ. And, and I'll just say, as you enter into this continual distraction... You'll be thinking about the Lord and then you're over here. And again, not to bad things. We just, we, we, there's just things, grooves that need to be worked in our lives. And as disciples, God wants to help us work those grooves in our lives with the help of the word. The word of God. Using my thoughts, directing my thoughts, and choosing what I allow to occupy my thoughts are central to walking with Christ. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. little song we sang. Well, we always looked at that as don't look on bad things. Just sometimes we need to keep our eyes centered on what it is that we do need to be looking at. And a note, I didn't know Bishop was going to be here tonight, but I'm glad he is. Read your Bible every day. And begin to meditate and possibly memorize portions of it because it's a key to retraining your thinking. You can just, I'll tell you what, just start with something. My wife reminded me of this day. Just start with one thing you probably already half memorized and don't even realize it. 23rd Psalm. That psalm was written by David from the perspective of a sheep learning how to follow his shepherd and what that shepherd would bring him into. And all the goodness and all of the abundance if that little sheep would just stay behind the shepherd. It's a picture of walking in relationship. And everything we desire, everything our heart cries out for, David describes in that psalm and sets it out as being, but, but how do we skip? We meditate on it. We ponder it. We think about it. And yes, memorize scriptures like that and many, many others. 
Well, let me end here with a question. Will you step out and enter upon such a journey of discovery and change? I have been aware of this journey, as I've said for years, read about others who've set out on this journey and been very successful at it. One of the, one of the greats for centuries is a man by the name of Brother Lawrence. He wrote a little, a little, I don't even know if he wrote it. It may have been people who heard what he said and they wrote it. Practicing the presence of God. He worked in the kitchen in a monastery in the, in the 15 or 1600s. He was a nothing. But he learned how to keep Jesus ever before him. And people from all around would come to hear his wisdom. Because something had been formed in him. I've set out, like I said, a time or two. And finally, for whatever reason here, not too long ago, I just felt like the Lord said, no, I'm, I've got to go this way. And I began to invest myself in this and practice and work and do some of these things. And, and God, I'm, I'm really almost, this is a report from the front, what I'm saying here tonight. There comes a time when God says to our heart, it's time. It's time. Take up your bed and walk. What about you? Are you willing? I'm not making an emotional appeal here. But I'm inviting us to make a frank assessment of what it is time to do with our lives and to, to determine what we believe God will do for and with us. Will you believe Christ to meet you and help you walk in the yoke with him? Will you ask the Spirit of Christ to make a way to take away the veil that's in 2 Corinthians and more fully work his transforming work in you.